Hello and welcome to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Efraim Martinez. I am a principal in search of wisdom, and I have found productivity to be a great tool for success. Today, I have the great and distinguished honor of interviewing Adam Powell Sheffer, but for a very special episode. This episode is about this gem of a book here, and let me tell you about it. As a principal transitioning into a new position, I have searched for the literature on entry plans and discovered entry planning for equity-focused leaders, empowering schools and communities. In this practitioner focus and action-oriented work, Jennifer Cheatham, Rodney Thomas, and Adam Parrell Sheffer, who I have the honor of interviewing today, consolidate their extensive experience centering equity in leadership. They affirm that the entry of a new leader or the pivot of an established one affords an unparalleled opportunity to garner the insight, trust, and commitment to establish a basis for positive, equitable transformational within the system. Adam Parrott is one of the co-authors, and he was interviewing Wisdom and Productivity when the show had just started back in 2021, I believe, or 2022. Adam is a former non-for-profit and school district senior leader. His areas of expertise include leadership entry, team development, board management, and program evaluation impact. Adam, how are you feeling? I'm doing well. I'd also say, you know, I'm, I'm a former principal who thinks it's the best job you can have. So I'm so excited to be talking with you this morning about your principalship and, and your upcoming change in one. And, uh, you know, I'm also a gardener. Yesterday, we had a nice rainy day. So it's going to be uh, good for all the plants that are that are growing around here. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, such a luxury for me. So uh, can you tell us about the origin story of uh, this gem of a book? Yeah. So I, I'd say there's two, right? So there's there's the, how did these three people get in the same room together? <laughs> um, and, and for us, like that, that story starts in Chicago public schools. Um, Rodney was a central office administrator. Um, Jen had come on first as a, as a network chief, uh, which for those of folks listening who aren't from Chicago is, you know, kind of a regional superintendent in charge of, a, you know, 25 to 30 some schools. Um, and I was starting as a principal. Um, and so we were all kind of starting in new roles at the same time and had places where our work was, was interacting. Um, and we all found each other to be, you know, folks we could trust. Uh, that we could ry- rely on in different roles, right? Like I remember being part of the, the rollout of the Common Core initiative um, with Jen and working with her team and thinking about, you know, how, how does this feel? Like it was almost before we had this empathy interview idea. How does how would this rollout feel for those of us who are principals having to do it? What would be helpful? What would not be helpful? Um, and so that was the, that was the first uh, start of the book was relationship, right? Like meeting people um, who then cross paths again later in life. Uh, right. So Jen went on to become a phenomenal superintendent in Madison. I went on to the, the, the nonprofit sector and principal coaching. Um, and Rodney also went on to a leadership role. And then, you know, right around right before the pandemic, our, our paths merged again. And 
I was working with Jen and we were creating and redesigning a course on entry, knowing that a lot of the stuff that existed, which is not a lot, right? Like I, I'm, I'm curious with your search, you probably didn't even find that much. <laughs> not much. <laughs> um, and some of the stuff is good, but it's, it's older, right? Like there's, there's ways in which I think the world has changed. And so um, we started co-designing this course, uh, Rodney, Jen, and myself, and, and, and some other folks um, for uh, students, mostly master students in leadership who are going to be taking on roles. And, you know, we, we made the course, people loved it. They started using the entry plan materials that we made. Um, and we're seeing great results as they went into their schools. And, you know, like, we started a different course for professionals. And then, we're, then we started saying, you know, I think there's, mm. there's a larger audience for this. There's a lot of people who could benefit from thinking differently about how they start jobs, that we can do it in a way that, you know, helps you learn, but doesn't, you know, make, make it so that you replicate the system that you're going into, but can really be a voice for uh, helping it achieve its, its greatest, uh, you know, vision and desires. So that, that's our Beautiful. story. So, like, uh, for the listeners of the show, they know that uh, I am a school principal. So I'm going to uh, frame my questions based on uh, what the principal should be thinking, even mm -hmm. though I want the audience to know that the book does a great job in giving a lot of teaching advice for any positions, but be superintendent, should be uh, assistant principal, principal, and all the areas. So... Thinking about uh, a principal, a uh, new or established one, can you explain what an entry plan is and how it can help us, uh, the school principal, achieve their goals? Uh, and and I and I appreciate that that we that narrowing to a principal, right? Like we, we have these great audiences across across the book, and um, we're very intentional about hearing from all sorts of different voices in our research. But for me, that passionate piece was always that. You know, schools are that unit of change. We want to make sure that that, that we're focused on our, our school leaders. So an entry plan and an entry process is um, the idea that when you go into a building, when you go into your work, there are two things expected of you and they're in conflict, right? You are at your most or your least competent first day on the job, right? You don't know anything. You don't know the way it works. You don't know the stories. You don't know the history. You don't know the people. And so you've got this huge job to be a learner. And you want to create space because you know that you can't make good decisions until you know where you are, um, until you're really embraced in, in, in this community. At the same time, your school's demanding and expecting you to act, right? Like there isn't a luxury of time. Uh, we like to say that there is, right? People always say like, oh, you're going to go in, you're going to listen, you're going to learn. And then Tuesday morning, a parent comes in and they tell you, drop a bomb on you, right? Like they say, mm -hmm. happened with a teacher or this person's always doing this or this has been a problem. Are you going to be the one to fix it? So people are expecting you to make promises, promises that you don't have the information to, 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 to make. Um, and so what an entry process does is create space, right? Like it's a transitional space that lets you um, be transparent about the moment. It lets you be transparent about your learning um, and gives you room to both act, have click wins and 
start to learn what this place is about so that so that you can come put together and say like this is what it means for us to coalesce around a new way of being as an organization to set new priorities i'm not going to come in and tell you this is how it is it's not going to be uh, the frin school right i'm a leader my job is to create the container for us to grow our school and so what i'm going to be doing in an entry plan is container building um, and making sure that everybody's represented in where we're headed Well, now that you say everybody, it's a gateway for the next question. Why is equity such an important consideration for school principals? And how can an entry plan help them promote equity within their schools? Yeah. So for me, the answer to that question is personal. Like, I'm somebody who school didn't work for most of the time. I did all right in it. I got good enough grades, so most people didn't know. Um, but I was also the kid who experienced every part of the discipline code, right? I like to I like to joke that the reason I became a principal is because I'd spent so much time in the principal's office as a kid that I might as well stay there. <laughs> I know what you say. Learned yes. the job. It should have been an internship. Instead, it was suspension, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I only got through high school because my dad dragged me through the door and dragged me through my, uh, you know, final years of classes and made sure that they happened. Um, so, like, I know personally that even people who might look successful on the outside, our organizations don't always work for them. And when you think about that particularly, and, you know, when we talked and spoke with you know, um, black and brown principles, um, queer principles, that like that's even more so, right? The experience of how school does not work for folks is so salient for so many people, right? And so if we don't have equity at the center of our work, like regardless of what these political conversations are, the things that are happening in states across this country, like censoring words, censoring books, like The fact of the matter is, if we aren't actually centered in making sure people belong, if we're not actually centered in rooting out where are the places where our organization is causing harm, not because of who people are, then we're not doing our job as leaders. And so when I think about what we mean when we mean equity, what we're talking about is examining our systems and understanding that any system is not going to work for everybody all the time. And that we have to be finding ways to address that and to create space for folks. You know, uh, our country is divided, divided in 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 terms of this um, in search of equity, and while others look for the search of equality. Um, um, we're gonna the the book talk a lot about the process of healing, because. Yeah when um, these entry plans are developed, there's a lot of information that is garnered. Uh, and at some point when it's distributed, it might hurt some feelings or it might encounter some roadblocks uh, because sometimes we don't want to face uh, the reality. Uh, I know uh, um, one of the following questions Uh, it is a, a quote, uh, but I think it's appropriate to, to say it now by James Baldwin that mm -hmm. said that not everything that is faced can be changed, but yeah. nothing that can be changed can be changed until it is faced, right? Uh, what, what thoughts do you have on, on this tsunami that sometimes um, 
new leaders that entry into a school, specifically in this case, principals, when they had to face the realities that not each child had been served appropriately. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think one of the most important things that we need to think about as principals is our motivation in that moment, right? It can be really easy, right? Like I imagine, you know, principals that I talk to that are having to, you know, pull books out of the library, right? That are, you know, being pulled before school boards um, because of lessons that say slavery happened, right? Things that are, things that we know, um, right? And that are going into these school situations where people are afraid, uh, where people across the spectrum are afraid and nervous about what this moment means and that there's harm, right? That you have a lot of people who feel hurt. Um, and I think one of our dangers in these moments, right? Where we bring in the change and, and, and we know that we are going to represent it, right? Like there's no way that we won't um, because we're going to be standing in front of it is we can go into that moment, you know, with a, we're right <laughs> and our job is to change people or fix people and we can other people, right? Like if we're going into this, bringing out this data to be like, you all are wrong and I'm right and this is the plan moving forward, that's harmful. But, you know, the other quote that, that goes with that is, you know, the, the Maya Angelou, and Maya Angelou, right? Which is, you know, when you know better, do better. And that knowing that, and the, but the first part of that quote is like, everyone's doing the best they can. Everyone's doing the best they know. So your job isn't to show people that they're wrong, but it's for all of us to realize, you know, there's ways we can serve people better. Let's listen to the stories. Let's listen to the evidence that we have from the people within our system and, and think about how we might do it differently. Um, I think about there's a, a story that a, that a leader trusted us with where they were new on the job. And again, it, it was a, 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 a Latinx leader. So, you know, he, he felt like parts of this was, was his community. Um, and an indigenous elder came to, came to a meeting and said, you know, this is the harm. Like this is, and like went through the stories, right? Like this is our experience of the school district for our people, for our, for our indigenous youth, for our children. Um, this is what happened in this 80s. This is what this is what you did, and this is what happened to our kids. This is this is what happened in the 1900s. This is the treaty we signed, and this is what happened differently, like where you did not hold up your promise. And so we were talking about not just generational, but like hundreds of years of harm that this leader had to confront, acknowledge, and live in community with at that time, right? So it's not as simple as saying, hey, we need to change, but like that sort of story, like it's powerful, but how does he help hold that story in a way that helps people who've been in the system longer than him hear it, but hear it as an opportunity to improve, to be better, as opposed to an indictment that you are the problem. I think that you said it well. The key thing is that the principal's job is not to go and tell the people how wrong they are, but to to bring the topic to the forefront and address it and acknowledge that it has happened and together come up with ways on how we can move forward from that in a more positive way. 
I think that that's uh, um, at least when I started as a principal, uh, my assumption was that my job was to come and fix and tell people, Me too. <laughs> right, how wrong they 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 were, and and sometimes school graduate schools of education um, um, have failed us in that way that they have made us believe that we come with all the answers, and what we get is that we are seen as arrogant. And we are seen as like, who, what do you know? You don't yeah. know our suffering. So that's why it's so important to read about, for example, this book. So let me ask you, uh, the book says that there are like three entry phases when one begins. Number yeah. one, reflect. Number two, listen and learn. And number three, plan to act. So can yeah. you walk us through those phases? Yeah, so... In our model and the way that we really think about entry, and I think one of the things that's important to share is, uh, you know, Jen Rodney and I didn't just pull this out of a hat, right? Like we didn't just say one day. Um, one of the things that we did is we talked to and interviewed many leaders who were ultimately really successful and had longevity, right? So yes, our, our practices are on enter in here, but a lot of our work was called and the principles and trends come from hearing from leaders who are successful and seeing what are the patterns and how people approach those early months on the job. So um, as you read the book, there's all these case studies in it from specific examples, but there's a whole list of folks in the back um, of leaders and that, you know, whose stories are, are part of the, the insights that are gleaned here. So I just want to acknowledge that just, uh, ooh, ooh. So there we go. Did that mess anything up there? No, no, no. I got you. I got you. Well, this is one where I'll have to move the mouse because my computer thought we weren't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted that mm -hmm. stunning moment before I uh, jumped in, but I want to acknowledge and celebrate <laughs> that there are so many people who are part of this work whose names are in the book, but are not, uh, you know, on, on the cover there that are that are part of this. But from all these folks, yeah, there's this. The work begins before you get started. Right. Your first job when taking a role is to get real clear about who you are. It's why me? Why now? Why this place? Why, why is it that you are the person for the job in this moment? Um, what's your story? What are the things that you're bringing to it? What are the, you know, as we just said, what are those lessons learned from other roles that we might need to, you know, give ourselves grace on? And, um, you know, put away, right? Like I know probably after your first role, the second time you became principal, you probably said, I need to come in a lot more as a listener. I'm not the person who has the answers. You know, I had a, a, a mentor who also like me is somebody who's, you know, quick thinking and wants to jump in with things. And he said, Adam, you're like me. Your job is to sit on your hands and to not open your mouth until everyone in the room has already shared it will serve you well, right? And so those are like, you have to know yourself and start to think about what are the shifts you need to make so that people see you as the leader you see yourself as and not um, as the, the parts that we're blind to. Um, you also kind of got to get to know the place, right? You got to build that community that's going to help you in this work, right? You have to learn kind of what's going on here a little bit, that basic knowledge, the stuff you can find on Google, have a sense of the place, but really reflect on, you know, those three questions. Why you, why this place, and why this moment? Um, then you got to do the work of listening and learning, right? Like, you know so little, 
you're going to get lots of information and you can go off of, you know, the extroverts who come out to you, the LSC members in Chicago or the board members or the PTA representatives, uh, the teachers who are on the teachers uh, union and, and represent teachers. Um, and those are important stories and you definitely need to hear those, right? Or you can really be intentional and think about who do I need to hear from? What sort of questions do I need to ask folks so that I have a real good picture of this organization? Um, not just the organization as it wants to be, not just the organization as those who have power think it is, but how do also people who perhaps don't have power within the organization, how do they experience it? How am I making sure that I'm a fair broker and a voice um, for folks who might not have been part of the conversation before I started? And so you do all of that learning um, and you do and you do that together, right? Like part of what we really advocate for is that when you look at the, your evidence, when you look at your interviews, when you bring these things together, it's not something you're doing in your office by yourself. It's something you're doing with the same people. You're saying, hey, these are the sorts of things I've heard. Is this ringing true? To what degree? What parts don't feel right? Right. So you're engaging in that sense making with other people. And some of that's quantitative stuff, the data, the test scores, those sorts of things. And some of it's stories that people have shared with you and trends that you're hearing in stories, um, experiences of graduates, experiences of people who didn't graduate. Um, right. Like, I think that's all all you're bringing that together. You're doing the shared sense making so that you can have this moment where you get in front of people and say, this is what I've heard. This is what that means and where we need to go. This is who we are. This is who I am. This is our story. This is, this is where we're headed. Will you join me? And that's that last phase, right? Like, and it's, it's that moment, that call to action to say, we can be a different place. It will take all of us. And we're going to keep learning and changing along the way. This isn't a one and done, right? We talk in the book about how um, you can do entry even if you've been in the job for three or four years, right? Give yourself the opportunity to reset. Give yourself the ability to put fresh energy into your work. Um, but in, the end is a call to action um, for your community. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I feel that I'm sinking in with what I have read. Let mm -hmm. me ask you, um, let's talk about the importance of developing a leadership story. One of the parts that uh, impacted me the most about the book is the story of Nancy Gutierrez mm -hmm. and what she wrote, The Answer is in the Room. Uh, can, can, you, can you tell us about why it's important to develop a leadership story um, and, and have it in consideration when you are a principal, having consideration when you come in that your story doesn't mean that you come with all the answers, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Why is this important? So before you step in that door, every last person is wondering who you are, but that's not the part they care about. What they care about is who you are and what does that mean for me, right? And so every last person is entering the situation, entering your leadership, with a sense of uncertainty, a sense of fear, because they know things won't be the same. There's no way they could be the same. You're a different person, right? And maybe it'll be better. Most people tend to think things are gonna be worse in uncertainty, right? Um, and so people are gonna be looking for clues and they're gonna build a story. 
and they're going to build a story based upon very little information, right? They're going to figure out like where you show up on Google. They're going to find, you know, one person that they knew who worked with you 10 years ago and can tell a story, right? Like people are going to hunt out information. They want it. Um, so one, it's really helpful to just give them information. Um, and two, um, it helps makes transparent so people know what you're about. Um, but that's only step one, right? So the important part of a story is to be able to say, this is who I am. These are my values. These are my hopes and dreams. And this is how I plan to go about being a leader. This is what you can expect of me. So that's part one. Part two is delivering on some of those things, right? So if you say you're a transparent leader and you value transparency, where are you giving them moments to see that in the coming weeks? Because that's how you build trust. If you say that you're a leader who values input, who values disagreement, what happens the first two times people disagree with something that you say? How do you, how do you approach that? What happens with that information? So you're building a story both to like get the first narrative out there, but also to set up the conditions where people can actually kick the tires and see if you're legit. So for me, the story, the real part of the story is it's your way to make sure that you're building trust on your terms um, and, and what you aspire to be, right? Are you a vulnerable person? Do you make mistakes? And what happens when you make mistakes? Do you apologize? <laughs> Do you talk about how you'll fix it, right? Like what are those, what are those lessons learned? And to facilitate this developing of a leadership story, the book has several resources that uh, uh, and frameworks to follow on tools on how to, because we all know our story, but getting it in a concise way is important to use these tools so we can uh, narrow it down and, and, and polish it because we can only make one impression one time. You're riding on it or you got a lot of work to do to fix it, which is still possible, but it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, make fewer mistakes in the beginning. And, and I, really, I appreciate that you brought that up too, because I think one of the things for folks to know um, just like about the book, people who are starting letters is like, this is a book by practitioners, right? So like one of the things that we hope and the feedback we've gotten from people is like, it's a book you do right? There's all these things for you to help you do this work. It's not your normal education book where it's lots of stuff to read and lots of theory. Like, yes, there's parts of it that is in there. But at the end of the day, what we wanted to do was something that you could actually pick up and do and have it coupled with stories so that you had examples of what it could look like when you use these tools. But I hope that's been your experience, that it's been. Oh, and it's yeah. such a good read. Uh, it's it's the, the story, the momentum uh, goes very well. And I appreciate the the it links you to the literature out there uh so you don't have to uh, start from scratch uh because literally went from the the uber famous book kind of antiquated entry plan book that everybody has read about and then i i, I stumble into this one and it really expands you because mm -hmm. it does a great emphasis in the equity portion of things right uh, so let me ask you, uh, the book talks a lot about that when you come in, you need to do empathy interviews. Yeah. Uh, how does this look like? Yeah. So one of the ways that I, that I really think about it is that an empathy interview is your opportunity 
to do your best to see this organization from the perspective of someone else. Your goal isn't to convince them. The goal isn't to learn what you want to know. The goal is to sit with a person, hear their story of who they are and how they experience the organization and life sometimes, right? So the whole purpose is to do enough of those so that you can understand, like, you know, there's that saying that they like to use in, 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 in you know, negotiation stories and things like that, that part of the problem, like, you know, there's this elephant in the room, right? And everybody has a blindfold on and someone's holding the trunk and someone's holding the tail and someone's holding the leg and someone's holding the back and they all think they're holding something different, right? Because they describe it like, no, it doesn't feel like this. It feels like this. It's not like this. It's like this. Um, and like, that's how our organizations are, right? They're the elephant. We all only get a certain part of the elephant that we can experience. And so part of your job as a leader is to hear the people, hear the person holding the tail and be able to really believe that the organization is their experience of the tail the same way it's the experience of the person who's got the tusk or the person who's got the leg or the person who's got the ear. Those are all experience of the organization. And if the more you can see that whole picture by seeing it through so many different perspectives, the more likely you'll make better decisions, more inclusive decisions, um, and, you know, not gut, you know, reduce yourself to like what you would have done in the past or what's the Ephraim way of thinking about the school. It's, I'm, I'm going to be a holder of others' perspectives. Again, I think leadership's about being a container for others um, more than having your own ideas, which is a shift for me. If you had asked me this as a first-year principal, I would not have said that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, uh, I think uh, Superintendent Cameras, uh, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, the story that uh, he really goes into town and does this empathy interviews And he says that he decided not to take notes because he wanted to the other people to feel his presence. And, you know, he had the luxury, you know, he has a team after him taking notes for him. But obviously principals don't have a team taking notes for them. So what advice do you have? Uh, I have um, seen a lot of YouTube videos where people say that they say they are taking notes in a computer. Um, I, I personally think like, oh my goodness, like that's so di distracting. Uh, I have tried to take notes uh, in my meet and greets with my with my new school, like, but I know that I'm missing some stuff. What is your advice on how to like collect this input on all these empathy interviews? And also how do you disaggregate this qualitative data uh, to in a way that makes sense? Yeah. Um... I'm also with you, right? Like I, my brain can only hold so much at a time. I love taking notes. I'm a computer note taker versus a hand note taker because my I can't read my handwriting half the time afterwards. So I definitely, definitely lead that way as well. I think one of the first things I'd think about is um, imagine you had to have notes in some way and that you couldn't do it. Everything's on the table. What might you do? Right? Is there an assistant principal who might join you on these? Is there a trusted member of the community, right? Especially if we're talking about taking notes in, you know, communities that have been at the margins of the organization that have not had less power. Um, might you, is there an elder that you might say, hey, would you come to this meeting with me? 
And as I talk and as I engage, would you help take the notes? Is there a student? Is there, you have old enough students that might be able to be a part of that, right? Um, I think that if we think about like, this is something that has to happen, we get a little bit more expansive about how it could be, right? So I think those are always um, ways to do it. The, another one I know you think you had um, Kim Marshall on recently, right? And so he is also a big proponent of not taking notes in the moment. Um, and I remember one time speaking with him and he shared that part of his practice was like, you know, you go in that room for the little bit and then immediately after the first thing you do is jot down in, on the paper or whatever your structure or system is, um, kind of what are those three big takeaways, right? Like what are the, what's the appreciations you want to give the person? What's the things you want to shift? That might be a similar thing that you might need to do in, in some of these situations. So I, I, I'd start with, uh, yeah, figuring out how can it happen so that you can be fully present in, in the moment. Um, and if some of those things can't happen, it's also being comfortable with like, you're not, not everything is going to be sticky the first time. And some of it is going to slip or you might even write it down and you might not understand the significance right away. Right. Um, and so I think it's giving yourself grace to recognize, eh, I might not get it all. Part of that might be fine. Part of that might be like, oh yeah, you know, two months later, you did say that. I'm Thank you for bringing it back to me so that I know how important that is to you. I will honor that information, right? Like, so I think there are opportunities um, um, that way. And when you do this, you're going to get a ton of data, right? Like I'm working with a, a principal right now who has interviewed all of her teachers, you know, 40, 40, 50 plus teachers, multiple groups of students, focus interviews, and it's just a lot of stuff. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we've worked on is like taking that first pass around kind of what are some of those key pieces of the information. Um, and then she also built a team of folks um, to be part of this process with her that she meets with weekly over her first three months on the job, um, that she kind of shares what she's doing, gets some feedback on some of the initiative pieces, some of the budget pieces. And then she brings part of it to us. She'll be like, hey, like here are some quotes that I heard. And one of the, you know, one of the things that has surfaced in her entry has really been um, the experience of, you know, the black boys in her school and the level of disengagement they feel and the, the, that they don't have the same relationship with their teachers um, as, you know, many of the other kids in the school. And so like she brought those quotes, like she pulled out what did kids say with her and she brought it to the group and said, what is, what, what do we do with this? What does it mean to know that this is somebody's experience? How I, I start with the assumption that like, this isn't what we want for any of our kids. So what, how do we engage in this? How do we start to, you know, start to make shifts and what are the themes that we're seeing here? And so there's this back and forth between doing enough of the work on your own. So you're not putting all the labor on people because there's not going to be enough time. Right. So doing a little bit of synthesis and analysis, but then making sure that you're bringing it to uh, you know, a group of folks and maybe it's different groups for different things. That's something that different people decide on differently. Um, but that you're really doing that meaning making and you know the so what, now what parts of that kind of protocol, right? If I can think about it sim more simply, you do kind of that what phase by yourself. <laughs> yeah. So what in a group and then a now what in the group and share that with those who'll be impacted with it if you wanna think about that old you know, English protocol. What is what is your advice on, on on with all this data, right? Like I remember in in grad school when I was doing my dissertation, I used the uh, software called Deduce to get all this qualitative data and find trends. That is like a super geekiest way. Uh, some people I have I have read and seen that they use word clouds, mm -hmm. put all the input and see where 
uh, what is your advice on 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 on, on how how details should we get with trends or should we just go with you know i keep hearing a b and c these three things what are your thoughts on that i think first and foremost that is why knowing yourself and knowing your context is so important right like your point of doing all this analysis is to be able to make inferences and judgments that the majority of folks feel are true Right. So this isn't the world of randomized control samples and being able to publish a paper. This is the world of does this feel truthy to us? And so for some folks that is doing, you know, they want to geek out. They want to do those pieces. Uh, they want to put into word cloud and see what the big words are that come out. Um, they want to run regression analysis. If that's you, great. Do it. Um, do it in a way that's approachable by everybody. You can't do it in a way that like makes it seem like, oh, I have the answers because I did the math. It's got to stay. Everyone's got to be able to be included. Um, other people, it is. It's like, hey, in general, I see these trends in, in, in the data. What do you see, right? It can be a little bit more organic. Um, I'm definitely somebody who feels that as a society and as a structure, we have a over-reliance on scientific statistics, right? Like we have elevated a Western, you know, science way of knowing the world over other ways of knowing. And I think clearly those ways are important. We need to keep using them. They can lead to all sorts of discoveries. And I also believe strongly in professional knowledge, right? Like I believe that with 25 years of experience who have a feeling in their gut are able to do things because of the way the human brain works that there's truth in that too. And that's gotta be part of the equation as well, right? That there's there's story knowledge that also matters. Ah, oh, still with me, perfect, all right. No worries, I got you. All right. Um, so so the, the, the importance uh, not only on the scientific uh, knowledge, but also on the professional knowledge that people bring into the table. It's about bringing both together. Um, and then it is, um, you know, knowing what's true for you. I think one way that I think that it's helpful to do that in like in group and like feel free, like anyone who's listening, uh, just type in affinity protocol um, mm. into uh, your Google search and you'll find it. I believe the National School Reform Faculty still has one up on their page. Um, I know that there's a version still in instructional rounds. But what this is, is like you have people look at the data together and you tell everybody, pull out five pieces of data that really seem to hit you some way, right? Like, is it a quote? Is it a, is it a number? Is it a uh, particular graph? And we put it all on the wall. And then the group's job is now let's organize it. What things go together? Put the things that go together next to each other. All right, circle those. What would you label that? If we thought, what are all those things that are in that box there? We might say things like, you know, these are all about, you know, students wanting more voice. Or these are all things about, you know, teachers feeling that decisions happen to them as opposed to being a part of it. Um, or that, you know, we don't have enough for safety and security, right? Like, so whatever the things are, like, that can be a way to bucket and chunk it as a whole group um, that gets to the heart of things. That gets you to things that people really believe, but gets you out of the world of, like, we're just doing it because I said it. Um, so I think that affinity protocol is a way that a lot of schools can get into those sorts of what are the themes and patterns and trends that we're seeing here? Beautiful. Adam, should principals meet with 
every single person or are there some people that one should avoid? Um, I think one, it never hurts to meet with anybody, right? Like this, like, I think one of the things you have to think about is like, it's like, would you ever say to a teacher, are there any kids that you should avoid in your class? <laughs> right? So I do think there are people that will naturally come to you and there are people that you will need to make an effort and seek out. Um, and there are people who will not want to meet with you yet. Right? There are people who've had enough harm from the from their experience of school that will be like, I need to see it before I'm trusting you with any part of my story. Right? So I think it is a, it's not a one and done. It's not a give up. It's a, you know, who are the people that we need to hear from? So I think it's more about which voices being thoughtful about who do you invite and how do you make sure that you're bringing people to the table versus, you know, not listening to folks. I do think there is a, people are going to give you over information, right? And it's going to be top of mind or they're going to give it to you in a strong way. And it's going to be hard for you to say, that's one perspective, right? That person's only got the trunk. I got to remember they're only the trunk because they're, they're really persuasive. They're going to convince me they're the whole elephant. Um, so I need to make sure that I'm putting what they say in perspective um, because either they have a lot of power or because they're persuasive and, 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 and repetitive in, in what they share. Beautiful. So the, the book talks about the, the importance of political mapping. Mm -hmm. How, how, what should principals uh, think about this? Yeah. So I think particularly with newer principals, um, there's a, you know, there's a naivete, right? Where we think that the org chart <laughs> is real, <laughs> right? That we think that these structures that the system has put in place are the real relationships. And what you learn very quickly is none of those things are the actual, like who knows who is way more complicated than that, right? So mm. political mapping is so important because you see who's in, you see who's out, you see what those lines of communication are. Like you learn things like, oh, this person actually has, you know, the fourth grade teacher has a lot of influence with the seventh grade teacher because they taught their kid three years ago. Or, oh, those three teachers are on the same soccer team. Or that person is actually friends or went, is in the same sorority as the assistant superintendent, right? Like all of those sorts of informal relationships, as, as we know, are so much more important to getting things done than the actual org chart structure. Um, and so political mapping helps you understand what are all the relationships in the organization. Um, and can be really helpful. I mean, one of my interview questions that I often ask folks as part of my empathy interviews is I say, you know, who can you count on when you really need to get something done? Like who's your ride or dies? Because <laughs> um, I find that really can get you closer to who actually has capital around this organization? Who are the people who are considered reliable? Who are the people that might not have as many relationships? Wow. I mean, perfect conduit for the next question. Um, it seems to me that um, the two most critical questions to bring to that first um, meet and greet with uh, faculty staff is 
What do you like, like about the organization? And what do you want to see better or improve? Uh, I didn't think about the one about who, who would you go if you really need something to get done? What are some questions that you think are critical uh, that are perhaps the most important questions that come to mind? Yeah, so I, I, I appreciate you sharing those questions. Those are definitely in my top five. Um, I would say that before that one, though, are the relational ones, right? You got like the first thing you got to know is who people perceive themselves to be, right? And 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 how they see themselves within the organization and, and, and the emotional questions. I think that the first things to ask for me, like the way I often ask it is like, you know, in your job, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a kid, whether you're a parent, I ask, you know, you know, what's your superpower? Like as a student, what's your superpower as a student? What do you do here? And like, you do it awesome. Like, you know that that's a strength you can lean into as a teacher. You know, what are your teacher superpowers? What are the things other teachers come to you for? Right? Let them let, figure out what people see as their strengths so that you can acknowledge them and whether or not they are their strengths, right? Like you might get data later, like, ooh, that's not actually your strength, but you can approach that situation a lot. It's a lot different when you both agree something needs to be worked on versus when you're like, ooh, I'm getting a lot of info, like message from kids that that might not actually be your strength. Um, and we agree versus if we don't agree, I know I'm going to have to navigate that differently. Um, and so that's a key question for me. Um, the other one is my job as a principal is to care for you personally and professionally. Um, and part of that is helping you be successful in whatever that career journey looks like for you. Um, and so for me, that comes out in two questions, right? Like, I think it's important to ask people, what about your work brings you joy? Why, are, what is it that you keeps you showing up every day? What are those things that you like? Cause that's gonna help give me insights into the things that you're gonna be passionate about, the ways in which we can engage you in the larger work of the organization. Um, and help try to mitigate the other part is, you know, what depletes you? Like no job's perfect. So I know that there are things in here that make you tired. What are they? Are there things that we can do structurally or planning wise to make sure that more of your, your work is in the joy category and less of it's in the depletes category? Um, so for me, those are really important. I think the other one particularly coming new is, um, every school, like there's so many commonalities, but every school is also unique, right? And I think it's important to know how people define the cultures and traditions of their school, right? So I also ask people, you know, what are the two most important traditions or cultural practices we have here? What are the things, right? So when I was a principal, I word for word, I think I talked to 80 people and one of their two for all of them was the um, you know, the international fest that we did every year where all the parents brought in food and, you know, the arts department had all sorts of things like for this community. And I knew then, like, whatever happens, we need to make sure that our international fest is the best every year. This is this is a touch point for everyone who goes to this school. Um, right. For other people, for other places, it's something else. It might be a graduation event. It could be a field trip that everybody takes. It could be, you know, a certain specials teacher and something they did, right? Like you learn what are the things that you need to make sure um, whatever you do and however things change, that that is part of the conversation. So for me, it's that like what makes this community unique part of it. 
Um, and then if I think about your, your other, your questions, the only way I shift it is, it's not, it's not the, I can't remember exactly how, how did you say it there? Um, what do you want to see get better or improved? I try to make it even more concrete, right? Like I say, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about this place, what would it be? So again, like I want them because for me, it's that like language that's empowering, right? It's not just like, what do you want to see change? It's like, oh no, you're a part of it. Right now you're just waving the magic wand, but I want you to know, like I'm thinking about this, not as I'm going to fix it for you, but like something about this place, if you could, could change, what would that be? That if you will wave the magic wand. Wow. Before we continue with this masterclass, let's praise the Teach Better community. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. So Adam, how can principals engage the non-dominant voices? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is you got to know who they are. Right. Like, I think one of the things is when we think on that reflect phase of the first phase of your, your entry process, it's who are those people that might not have as much voice here? Right. Like, I mean, I think there's some really easy go to's, right. Like go to your discipline list. Who are the kids who have the most time and most referrals? Right. Talk to your teachers and say, who are the parents we never see? <laughs> who, mm. who has ever made a teacher parent parent teacher conference since freshman year of high school, right? Like, um, who are the teachers that no one named when you said, who do you count on, right? Like, who are those folks that aren't coming up in the conversation, right? Like, so figure out who those folks are. Um, and then figure out how you can go to them and go from a place of humility and learning to hear their story, right? Like with a lot of folks, what I find is once you do that, like you're gonna get it all. So you better be ready, right? You have to be ready for what you're going to hear because it's probably going to involve harm. It's gonna involve trauma. It's gonna involve pain. And so this is not one that you go into thinking like, oh, I can just do it with, you know, 30 minutes here. It's when you go into thinking there's probably gonna be follow-up. There's a chance it goes long. If I have things scheduled after, I need to make sure there are things that I can cancel um, and then figure out what's the right place to have the conversation, right? So when you're working with um, folks who've you know, been harmed by their school experience, you, like you might not have that meeting at school. Um, is home, are home visits an option? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? Is there a place in the community, um, right? Like where do people hang out and feel safe? Is it, you know, I've been in places where like the place where everybody went was the McDonald's in town and you could hang out at the McDonald's with people, right? Like that was a, that was a place to do those sorts of conversations. Is there enough privacy for the conversation? These are all things that you'll want to weigh in and, and think about with, with your design. Um, and the other one is thinking through who are the folks that you might talk to, right? Like within all of these, within all of our communities, um, you know, there are elders, there are leaders who, um, if you work with first, if you build trust, if you build connection, um, can help bring together folks who you might need to hear from. So wow. I'd say find your elders and lead through them and listen to how they're approaching the situation. What's the ways they introduce themselves? What's the ways that they engage um, with folks? 
uh, and recognize that you're going to hear things in ways that don't feel traditional to you, right? Like folks might cuss you out. Folks might yell at you. Folks might tell you all these things that you know are not true. And you need to hold that as true. That's their tale of the elephant. And so it's not a go in to write them off. It's recognizing that people are telling you something in the ways in which they know how to say it. Wow. I need to find that uh, picture of that elephant because it's, it's such a great uh, way to see it. So we're getting ready to, to we have all this data. We have mm -hmm. processed it. There's a quote that says, a leader must connect values and strategy through emotions to generate collective actions. Yeah. So the question is, how can principals share findings? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things is through repetition in lots of ways, right? Like <laughs> people have to hear things five to 10 times before they hear it. Uh, it's one of those things that it's one of those mysteries of people. Uh, and then I think oftentimes, so the way that you share findings, what I, one thing that I would hope that you find through your interviews is what are the ways in which people hear things, right? For some audiences, it's going to feel very professional the way that a, a principal would normally do things, right? You're going to create a slide deck. It might have some graphs in it. It's going to have, you know, pop-up quotes of things that you heard. It's going to have the data of who you talked to and how and recommendations. And it's going to feel like that formal process, right? Um, and that's going to be a way that you share findings. There are other times that you're going to figure out like, you know, these three stories capture so much of what we're trying to do here. And, you know, when I talk to this community or when I talk to this group of teachers or when I talk to this person one-on-one -on -one, or when I talk to, you know, the businesses in my neighborhood, I'm going to make sure I tell this story, right? Like there's this story about this kid who, you know, struggled here was told they couldn't do such and such, <laughs> like they weren't capable of becoming a lawyer or becoming this, and they're now doing this, right? Or, you know, let me tell you the story of Mrs. K in room 305 and what happens with her kids year after year. We need that Mrs. K experience in every single room. Here are some of the things that she's doing to make it happen. How do we make that just the way of being in, you know, school A, right? So I think there's this, what are the narratives? How do you how do you anchor in storytelling? How do you anchor in the other ways that you'll need to do it? But it's multiple modalities and then repetition. I like that multiple modalities and knowing uh, uh, who is uh, your audience. So an example of a corresponding strength-based language, which Again, the book is full of it and how to transform the language of deficit to a, a language of, uh, of, of strength. It says, the highest form of school love is the belief that each student is capable of excellence and deserving of deep learning and critical feedback. So the question is, how can we persuade teachers or administrators who want to put the blame on things that we can, on things that we cannot control? Yeah. Um, so when you shared the questions with me, this is one that I thought about a lot. Um, 
And I think the reason first why I thought about it was we really have to remember that we all do this, right? Like this is a place where it's real easy to get other people and to make it an us first them, right? Like I think about the kids and I think about what's possible and you are stuck in the mud and don't do things, right? Like there's this real temptation and it's like, I think in general, I'm pretty positive about what I can do. And I can still tell you times in my life around certain things where, yeah, I've totally blamed others. I've totally said, you know, if it wasn't for this, I could do this. If it wasn't for these, if it, right? Like we all do it to varying degrees about different things. So I think the first thing to remember is that empathy part is like, I'm not, when we're doing this work, I'm not calling you out and saying, be like me. I'm saying, hey, it's hard to be human. It's hard to do this work. <laughs> and, you know, things happen when um, we've all been there. But the only way forward is, is, is through our strengths and through what we believe. And I think if you do that, the next thing that you can do is start to understand like what's underneath those non-asset based ways that we talk about kids or talk about schools or talk about our work, right? Um, you know, some of it's just like in the trenches, you know, gallows humor type things, which isn't helpful, right? So there's a way to say, hey, I get it. It's hard, but how do we how do we move forward <laughs> in, in, in ways that are more positive? Um, and I'm somebody who loves gallows humor, right? So that's one that I got to tell myself a lot. Um, but if we think about the people who are in that spot and we truly love them and truly believe that they are, you know, in this work for the right reasons, which why would you be otherwise with all that mm -hmm. comes in principles? Um, that's a rational response. And we have to honor it as a rational response. I work currently with a, with a district um, and just had started this year where, you know, I think since the beginning of No Child Left Behind, they've been on corrective action. Mm. 10% of their kids can read on grade level. If you've been in that place, what response? How do you get out of bed every morning without pointing to the structural things and saying, if it wasn't for this? How could you look yourself in the eye? How could you look your kids in the eye without that response? So that's true, right? Like, and the structural things are true. Like, we can't be pretending that we don't live in a system that, you know, put structures of oppression in place that harms people, um, that elevates others, that disturbs power differently. Like it is all true. Um, so when I first think about it, it's like, we really want to change their hearts and mind. Our job as leaders is we have to build their belief in success in themselves. And when you're at the bottom of the pit, that's hard to do, right? But as a leader, how are you showing them that their actions cause improvement? cause the changes they wish to see and it's slow going and there's step backs and there's failures along the way but if you see your job as helping them see themselves as agents of control you're going to get further along with them i think the other root cause it's not just like it's alert behavior because we work in systems that are broken um but it's also fear right if you're telling me I have some power and control over this, I also have the power to fail. I might not be up for the task in front of me. 
And chances are alone, you probably aren't because all of us are not up for what we our schools need of us, particularly in this world post pandemic where we're seeing that our kids are two, three, four grade levels behind um, in terms of knowing uh, you know, content to be college ready. Um, and so you need to address the fear. People are afraid of failure. So what happens when people fail in your organization? You control a lot of the outcomes, what people will experience on failure. Is it embraced as a, hey, this wasn't failure. We captured learning. Now we know what not to do. <laughs> or, oh, that part worked. Let's lean into the part that worked, right? What happens? How do you show your own failure? Have you modeled? Have you have you screwed up? Um, oftentimes when I do professional learning, uh, I wish I could say it was always intentional. Uh, when I don't do it unintentionally, I do it intentionally, but I make a mistake. Within the first five minutes, I'll flub something, right? Normally I could do it naturally. <laughs> and in that moment you say, hey, good news, everybody. I've made the first mistake in the room. So none of you have to worry. I've done the stupidest thing so far and I did it in front of everybody on the stage. So you're all good. You got at least one pass because I've already made a mistake. So like, how are you actually creating space and showing mistakes are part of the process. We're going to screw up and I'm gonna be here. The tension you have as a leader is knowing like, there's also a student safety piece, right? There are things that, you know, you're gonna to have to address. There's going to be different conversations. This doesn't mean that like, you know, people can harm kids. This doesn't mean that people can be abusive, right? Like you're gonna put boundaries in place. You're gonna make sure you have fair processes around those oftentimes, you know, that are, you know, built from a, a district standpoint as well. Um, and so that's gonna happen. And there's gonna be times that you're gonna to have to have difficult conversations about like, hey, you guys said it was okay to make mistakes. And I'm like, and there are certain things that, are going to be dealt with differently. The learning might look different. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, masterclass. I, I'm so excited. Um, what is your advice on then creating this report, the findings, keeping in mind that there should be an effort of trying not to offend people, uh, having in mind that there was a sense-making process and that includes time for healing uh, uh, out of these findings? Yeah, so I think uh, some of these we touched on a little bit, right? So I think you're less likely to offend people if you build it with them, right? If it's the language that people people have heard, right? If, the, if you've socialized it beforehand, you've said, hey, I'm starting to hear this, right? So when they hear the big report language, um, I think the other thing is think about how you say things, right? Like we, particularly in our larger school systems and our public school systems, we rely on the language of bureaucracy, right? We love our, you know, three syllable words. We love to make things feel formal and professional. And I believe the more you can make things colloquial and simple, see, look at that, I'm using colloquial. When you put things in the words that people talk, the less scary it can be, the more transparent it can be, right? So I think that using simple language to communicate complex things can help folks. Um, and you're right, like part of it might be 
Um, and I think, I believe uh, Nancy shared this in her story as well. If not, you're getting stuff beyond the book here, which is um, as you start to share these things, you have to recognize when the moment requires a shift, right? So there were parts of Nancy's report that she shared that brought out feelings in people and brought out things that people shared about the, how they experienced the organization and the degree to which they felt isolated from it. And Nancy had a choice point. She could have kept going with what her plan was for the day and her entry approach and the strategic planning things that she could do, or she could pause and she could circle people up and she could create a space for dialogue and airing things that surfaced. And she chose the second one, right? Which a lot of people wouldn't do. She, she chose to be off track, right? <laughs> she chose to not be according to her pacing schedule there um, or her plan for what people should be ready to do. And instead she heard where people were and she created a space for healing. And you know, when you talk to Nancy and she looks back on that work, she says that was a key moment for our organization to be able to expand and grow in the ways that we did. Um, and so I think another piece is recognizing that your plan is there, but you also have to be ready for the plan B, C, D, or E that you might not have anything in writing for. And you're gonna have to trust your heart, right? This goes back to that professional knowledge piece, right? If your guts feel it, that I, I am someone who definitely believes you gotta trust that. Beautiful. You know, um... The perhaps the the chapter I love the most mm -hmm. is the last one, which is the 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 most important shift. And for the listeners and and viewers, uh, the three authors express that they did everything they were supposed to do when they started their leadership, but none of them center on the importance of healing, self care, and the care of others. So my wonderings are uh, when new leaders make time for their own self-care, does this create uh, a delay on the expected progress that leaders are supposed to accomplish? What are your thoughts on this? Um, so... First, thank you for bringing it up, right? Like, I mean, I think one of the, the things that I think with most sadness about my first leadership roles are those, some of those decisions, right? Like there are people I'm not friends with anymore um, that I didn't make time for uh, because I thought what I was doing was important and it was, right? But it was 14 hour days, <laughs> as Jen talks about to, to do, you know, you get at school at five and you leave at six or nine or 10, Um, and like, that's not sustainable. Um, and it's also not effective, right? Like I, I have a friend, um, who just wrote a piece, um, or was interviewed for a piece that, uh, was actually talking about how, um, when she pulled back, when she put boundaries around living a whole life in place for herself, when she attended to her health and spent less time working, she actually became more successful. That she was able to get more done or the right things done <laughs> um, and be with family and do those pieces. So I, part of me, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, it's still a learning space for me. And so I think that, I think that there's, 
a high likelihood that when we care for ourselves and we allow those we lead to care for themselves, we actually might be more productive. At the same time, I also know this work is not linear. I know that this work, like I push back on what we typically mean by progress, right? Like when I think about expected progress and what that means, I'm not exactly sure I'd be on the same page as whomever those, you know, district leaders are who are telling us that, right? Like for me, progress is in the creation of deepening communities of learning. Yes, there are outputs from that. They look differently. Some can be captured on the tests that we give. Um, some cannot. Some we might be able to get better at measuring in the future. Some are always going to be qualitative. Um, but I don't believe that there's an end place we all have to be. And if there were, I don't think anyone, particularly those who aren't in the community, would know what those are. And that it's our job, our job, the work is co-creating a place of learning that cares for our youth and unleashes their unlimited potential. And so I don't know how you set the progress on that. Amen. Uh, um, in, in, in one of the positions I've hurl, held, um, I will say, when do you have lunch? And they say, lunch? <laughs> we, don't, we don't have lunch. And uh, absolutely, it's just not something sustainable. And uh, it takes a toll on you and, and no real progress real ha uh, really happens. So brag about it, right? Like mm -hmm. you go to a principal meeting, it's like, oh yeah, I do lunch on the go or I have it. Like people brag, like there's a, you know, overworked Olympics that everybody's working for first place on. And I don't play that game anymore. I, yeah. I hope others won't either. And when I, when I meet kids and when I meet these younger teachers who are in their 20s and these early leaders, like, I think they're smarter than us. Like, I think they've, they got most of this figured out better than we had it figured out. <laughs> so Beautiful. The next generation. <laughs> yeah, schedule your lunch and have your lunch, even if it's 20 minutes, but close that door, have your time. Uh, it is It is essential for your success and the success of, your organization. So uh, since this show is about productivity, I needed to ask about the email time, right? Like, what is your advice? Uh, the, the book says that, you know, for example, you should not send emails at night because mm -hmm. it can trigger negative emotions in others, right? Yet during the day, sometimes email has been used as a communication device between teachers and principals although it's counterproductive right? because if you, for example, are going to get your hair done and in the middle of the process, the person who's doing your hair is checking their phone, you will be like, what the heck? This is my time, right? So I wonder what students feel about this. What, what should be the way? Should principals say, listen, I'm only going to do email at these times of the day. Um, what are your advice with this? Yeah, um, so definitely... Do not email after hours. Our email systems are set up that you can auto schedule it for the next morning. Do that. I know that like, I think, because uh, I, I know that there are people who are listening to this and they're saying, well, I tell people that just because I do it at night doesn't mean you have to respond. People don't believe you. And it puts an expectation that they feel like they have to respond. 
So regardless of what you think you've communicated, there is no communication on this. <laughs> if you send something at night, you are creating an obligation to people that they either have to check it at night to be prepared, or you have just people who like to know, right? Like they get worried um, and they want to be as prepared as possible. So recognizing that everyone's not like you, I strongly think you shouldn't be emailing. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't work in <laughs> any particular district. I work in lots of districts now and I still schedule my emails because I don't want any of the folks I'm working with to think um, that they have to move it forward at that time. Um, so I'd say that. The next thing that I would say is um, with what is your purpose and goal in emailing? What is the type of communication that you're trying to have happen? And is email the right way? Um, so one thing I wonder about that I'm personally curious in schools that have this strong email culture is why are people not connecting face-to-face -face enough to reduce these emails? Um, I received advice for like, you know, in, in, in my first principalship um, that, you know, if a teacher emails you, don't respond an email Note it. And like when you go to your classrooms that day, make sure you pop by and answer their question in person. I like that. Right. So we can we can move ourselves from an email relationship to an, a, a personalized relationship by, you know, not follow, like shifting up what the communication is going to be um, and figure out what is the, what's actually good for email. What are the things that need to be in writing that's helpful for people to go at? Are you creating a monster list of things, or do emails have, like, is it a discrete task that people can move off their list? What's the communication and, and, and management of work styles there? Um, and what are the things that are not served well by email communication? Where might there be some, you know, confusion being put into the conversation, just like texting and all these other forms that, you know, if we had just actually talked about it live, it would have taken three minutes, and now it's, you know, 12 emails back and forth, right? So, I think being really clear about what's the tool, what's its intended purpose, how well does it achieve that purpose, and are do we have other ones that are options that might be more effective for you know being in relationship with people and sharing sharing information. Beautiful. Uh, my final question, Adam. Uh, as I read this luxury of a book towards the the end, uh, there is the acknowledgement which I think are always so important because it tells you a lot about the spirit of who is writing the book. So you express particularly your gratefulness for the people that have supported you and love you. And you mentioned joyful learning. Yeah. Can we end the show today by you sharing with us how can we make learning and teaching joyful again? Um, in some ways we have to claim it, right? No one's stopping us, especially us leaders and teachers, right? Are you, how are you showing joy every day in your work? What brings you joy? Are you, do you give yourself permission to be silly, right? <laughs> um, where are the, what are those things uh, that, that make it so fulfilling for you? How are you making sure that people have agency over their work, right? We, 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 we feel joy when what we're doing is significant, you know, when we belong and when we're having fun. 
So what can you do each day to make sure folks feel significant, to make sure folks belong, and to make sure that there's time for fun? And fun does not have to mean, oh, a break from learning, right? Like, what are we doing if learning is not fun? It's not a, hey, if we do this really boring thing where I read and talk to you for 30 minutes, we get to play 10 minutes of heads up, seven up, or we get an extra recess. No, what's that thing? It's your job as a teacher to do the work, to figure out how do you make it not boring for those kids in front of you? What do they care about? What are you passionate about? What's the way to engage in that content that you know sparks joy? And that's our challenge. That's the tough part of being an educator. And the problem is not enough people are going to give you time for it. Not enough people are going to expect it of you. And so you have to expect it of yourself. Otherwise, it's a miserable job. And we don't want miserable jobs because miserable jobs makes miserable schools. And I'm not sending my kid to a miserable school. I got two boys and they need to be going to joyful schools. So I'm counting on the folks listening to this call. Um, you know, if you're not having fun, you got control over that. Make it fun. Wow. Uh, Adam, what a luxury for me to learn from you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. And congratulations. You got 100. Like When this started, it was a small little thing when we first started. <laughs> now you are 150 episodes. You're on video. Uh, well done. This has been an yeah. effort in learning. It has been a, a, a great professional uh, learning uh, tool um, to to interview, you know, some of the greatest minds like you. So, yeah, very honored. Well, now, so we've hung out this morning, but, you know, the relationships are reciprocal. So I know you're starting this new gig. I know you're going to be using some of these things. I want to hear how it goes. Anything Absolutely. That's well for you, I want to hear those plans. Anyone who uses the book who's listening uh, this morning, uh, you know, I'm only an email away or a LinkedIn connect away. Me and my co-authors, we all want to hear how folks are using it, what success is, how we can make it better. Um, because what, this is what we want. We want schools that are joyful places. We want leaders who are healthy, who are able to stay in the job as long as it is their light works call and then are ready for the next challenge. So please, please, Beautiful. please, how it goes. So go and purchase this book. Uh, entry plan for equity focused leaders. It's not only about the school, but it's also about the community. Thank you so much, Adam, and happy Saturday. Thank you for listening to Wisdom and Productivity, the podcast of Dr. Epaim Martinez. Chulu. And Adam, the production. Chulu out.